happy Mother Loving Friday. Welcome to another episode of the Uncorked Poetry Podcast. My name is Tamora Israel, and I'll be your host tonight. My guest today is Andrea Carter-Brown. She is a freaking awesome poet. She does so many things. She's a poet. She's an editor. She's an educator, public speaker, blogger, author, and an avid birder. We're going to get into that for sure. Thank you so much for being here with us, Andrea. How are you today? I'm good. Very, very nice to be here with you. Thanks so much for asking me. So, Dang, yeah, thank you for saying yes. We, we appreciate it here. So I hear you're on Cape Cod. I am. I literally just drove into Cape yesterday night. Oh, okay. Have you been and, to the Cape? Yeah, my parents retired to the Cape and for 25 years, I happily visited them because I love the Cape so much. Right? So do yeah. I. I love it here. I just absolutely love it here. Yeah. They were they lived out by the elbow. So I ah. could, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right right around here, place. you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right okay. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um yeah, I was it was they eventually left. Um and I haven't been back since, which is a while now, but I have Oh, just such happy memories of being there. I just, they had actually considered going to Florida. And my sister and I said to them, if you want us to visit you, Florida, Cape Cod, you better go to Cape Cod. <laughs> and they did. And they loved it. They had a great retirement there. It was before the, the, the big real estate explosion, development explosion. Uh, yes, when they, that is, that when is they first here. got were, lived there, if they needed hospitalization, Boston was the only possibility. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they were elderly, so occasionally they had to go into the hospital. But um, anyway, uh, and I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I'd love to go back. I'm actually thinking of trying to get a reading at um, the Cape Cod Cultural Center for my book. Yes, you absolutely should. You should do that. Yeah, as an excuse to go back and visit all my favorite haunts. <laughs> my husband told me that I should wear my um, lobster pot t-shirt for this Oh, talk. you have to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. It's long. Once you go over that bridge, you need something lobster or a shell of some sort. Yeah, well, I have them. I mean, if I... <laughs> I have shells all over the place. I have stones collected at the beach. I have, you know, mm -hmm. I have, uh, oh, I might still have a jar of blueberry jam put up. Yes. So, I mean, some years there weren't enough blueberries and so we just ate them. But some years there were a ton of them. Uh, in the garage is a Cape Cod canned cranberry box that they put the harvested cranberries in so anyway uh but i i understand you started in new york or you have new york experiences too i did i was born and raised on long island um oh i lived there okay. for 21 years and then moved to to the cape but yeah there's just certain things about new york that just kind of stay with you um i'm a very fast walker i have i just i can't Stand slow walkers, it drives me nuts. You're a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. Just, if you're going to walk slow, that's fine. Just walk to the right, 
so I can get around. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I think if you've ever lived in New York for a, a chunk of time, you feel like you're will always be a New Yorker. I mean, I've lived in Los Angeles since 2004. Oh, wow. And I do feel like this is my home. Uh, it took a long time, but it does feel like my home. But a part of me feels like I'm still a New Yorker. Just like right here, right? Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and people in Los Angeles tend to, um, if you come from New York, you kind of gather, you find each other. <laughs> and Is it the walking? All, what? Is it the walking? It's the personality. It's the, you know, directness. It's the, what can I say? The honesty. Mm -hmm. Uh I'm not an in-your-face person, but everybody from New York seems in-your-face to Angelinos because <laughs> it's so not the style out here. It's you know, there's great things. People are much more relaxed. People, I mean, the environment is a wonderful place to live. If I couldn't live on Cape Cod, this is a great place to live. Um, and for and I walk all over the place and you can also, there's beautiful beaches and there's mountains and there's deserts and uh, it's, you know, my, the oranges on my trees are ripening. So, you, you know, getting up. Orange trees? We, we can't just skip over that. We, we got to go yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> you Look at every, everybody trees? in, you, uh, we have a house first house I ever owned I mean I don't own it the bank owns it but whatever that's um, yeah and um, if you have a house in Southern California chances are you have orange citrus trees and they just produce even if you don't do that much to them I mean you have to water them some but not much and I mean we have these I have a, a lemon, two lemon trees. I have a lime tree, a tangerine tree, and two different orange trees. And they all ripen at sort of, some of them are ever bearing, which means year round. I haven't had to buy a lemon to cook with in years. And I'm making you, I'm making you just, there's something about going out and looking at the tree and saying, mm, I think that one looks like a good one. And then you cut it off and you bring it in and you cut it and you mm -hmm. hold it to your face. Mm -hmm. And this, there's, there's no smell like it. It's just, um, <laughs> it sort of makes up for a lot of things. What can I say? <laughs> and, Let me just um, knowing that like, it's, it's, that's, that's your tree. Like, yeah, yeah that's producing things. Yeah, without really any help from you. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's That's the natural right. world in operation. And when when they bloom, which I also do in a somewhat staggered way, but the blooms all look the same. You've probably seen a picture of a citrus flower. It's a, a white, it's about this big around and mm -hmm. uh, has, uh, it's a beautiful little flower. All of the smells are slightly different. What do you, what do you mean? 
Well, you can tell the difference by smell between the navel orange and the Valencia orange, between the true lemon, which the variety that's most common out here is called Eureka. Is that a wonderful word or what? I love it. Love and, it. <laughs> and also Meyer lemons. And, um, you know, at night they're very, they're especially fragrant at dusk or just after dusk. So you go outside mm -hmm. and you, and the bees are quiet then, so you have to worry about them. And you just sort of give yourself some homegrown aromatherapy. It's, <laughs> I know I'm sounding very Californian woo-woo, but it's like a religious experience to me. Every time I do it, it never gets tired. <laughs> no, so. I like the woo-woo. I'm always, I'm here for the woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take your woo-woo where you can find it. For me, it's in the citrus stuff. And um, and it was at the Cape too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just thought, I just adored the Cape. And I miss it. Same. I missed it so much that I I brought my whole family back. So you did. Uh, wow. I did. Uh, my mom, my dad, my little brother. Um, yeah. I just I I love this place so much. I wanted to come back. And do they love it too? Uh, they just got here last week. So oh, well, this so week, early this week. So well, we'll see. Hopefully, they like it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We'll look at. It. But so There's far, something so wrong good. with them if they don't like it eventually. So right. Yeah. 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 yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah we know. exactly. We do know. So, <laughs> so, so. Uh, Andrea, I have a couple questions I want to ask you, and uh, I want to talk about your your writing and your your process. Um, one, how long have you been writing poetry? Uh, gee, I started writing poetry. Um, let's see, about I hate to say this, about thirty years ago. Yeah, no, uh, age is a blessing. Well, all right, that's one way of putting it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was uh, I was working on another writing project, mm -hmm. uh, which was very beyond me. I mean, completely out of my uh, any skills I had as a writer. I had never published anything. I had never written anything except for myself. And I decided I wanted to write a biography of a 19th century pianist because I always want a woman. I always wanted to be a pianist. I, I, I'm not. And I thought, OK, this is the closest I can get. So I worked on this biography for maybe five years and I did research. I traveled. She was uh, German. I went to Europe. I learned German. And I know this is, sounds all crazy. And then I hit writer's block, which is not surprising. And mm. I was spent months. This is pre, this is, you know, basically pre-computer or dawn of the computer word processor age. So I was writing by hand and I would write a page and I would literally erase it because crossing out was a reminder that I had failed. So I didn't want to be confronted by all those reminders that I couldn't say what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that erasure period, <laughs> a friend like of it. mine took me to a poetry reading. Mm -hmm. I had never been to a poetry reading. I did not know the poet. 
uh, I had never written a poem. I had read poetry, but in high school and college, and it was a sort of, uh, wasn't an active part of my life. And I sat in this dark auditorium and this woman's poems just got straight, cut straight through what, whatever was blocking me. And I sat there in the dark and I started writing poems. And, uh, and I must have written maybe 10 poems in the next week. I started there. And I know this sounds crazy, but immediately I knew that this was what I was meant to be writing. Not that project with the banker's boxes and research material and <laughs> all of that stuff. It took me a while to let that go because I had invested a lot of myself in it. Mm -hmm. But um, I started, uh, I felt like this was where my bliss was. It was also where my frustration was, but it was where I could be happiest. And feel like I was doing something that I thought was worthwhile. And, and well, I still do. I still do. You still do. 30 years later, you still have the love for poetry. I do. I do. And I still have a deep humility about my own work. Mm -hmm. I, I always want to be better than I am. Mm -hmm. um, when... I write something that seems to uh, really reach other people. I'm so gratified. Um, and I I'm constantly trying to grow myself. And I hope I never stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that answer. I'm constantly trying to grow myself and hope I never stop. Uh, that leads me to my next question, which is, um, who makes you want to be a better writer? Oh, boy. Well, I'm probably going to... Um, most, of the, most of the writers that have meant the most to me mm -hmm. are dead. <laughs> um, And so I feel a little like I'm dating myself to tell you their names, but I will. Um, I, and these are writers that I do go back to. Um, I read a lot of contemporary poetry and I have like um, an infatuation and then I move on to somebody else. But I'm going to tell you the writers whom I read or deep sustenance about what poetry can do. Mm. Um, my first love was Emily Dickinson, mm -hmm. whom I discovered in high school. And I was lucky enough to work on the Emily Dickinson Journal and kind of exercise my love of her work from a different perspective. Um, I I would say that my second love was 
a really crazy French poet called Baudelaire, who, uh, yeah, Baudelaire, he was lived in the mid 19th century and he wrote really out there poetry. He was way ahead of his time. I, uh, and then after him, I would have to put Keats. Mm -hmm. um, what's not to love in Keats? Maybe there is, but <laughs> right so deeply out of the, um, what I call the existential condition. I love Elizabeth Bishop. Mm -hmm. I love Adrian Rich. I love Gwendolyn Brooks. Mm -hmm. I love Marilyn Nelson. I love Louise Clifton. Uh, my mentor for mm, maybe eight or nine years was a poet called William Matthews, mm -hmm. whom I wrote to out of the blue and asked him to take me on as a student. And uh, one day the phone rang and I picked it up and he said, hello, Andrea. I said, yeah, I didn't recognize no. the voice. He said, this is Bill Matthews. Now I thought of him as like, William, the great William Matthews. Yeah. So, and he invited me into his group of students. And I I love his work. Um, I learned so much from him. And he was a very generous teacher. What can I say? Wow. Um, so I think I'm going to stop there. Those are the most important <laughs> ones. Um, but those are poets who sort of changed my life when I encountered their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have another question for you then. Can we get into one of your poems? Sure. Great. <laughs> Which Great. one? <laughs> um, what are you feeling, um, what, what does tonight feel like you, feel like to you? Like, what do you feel like sharing tonight? Oh, wow. Hmm. Um, it's been a rough week. So do you want to do uh, something triumphant? Do you want to go uh, a little depressive? Um, I, I feel uh, somewhat meditative. Ooh, okay. Um, uh, in a meditative vein, Mm -hmm. The whole last section of my book is about what life has brought me since moving from New York City to California, mm -hmm. how I've put my life back together while the ghost of 9-11 mm -hmm. will always be there. Um, and... Uh, some of those poems confront climate change. Some of them confront um, health issues. Some of them confront war. Hmm. But they're not angry poems. They're about what's, what can be found 
after there's been great loss. I love that perspective. What can be found after there's been great loss? That's really cool. Maybe you have to be as old as I am to feel that way. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, life throws a lot of things at you. <laughs> yes, it does. You never know uh, what you're going to do with it. 9-11 mm -hmm. um, really laid me low for a long time. And um, I don't think it was even a question of fighting it. It just was. It was just the same as the dust cloud that I saw from Staten Island, where I had fled to, just covered all of Southern Manhattan. That cloud, I lived with that cloud inside of me for a very long time. And um, uh, to be able to say to you that here I am, uh, it's taken 20 years. It's, it's, I mean, it's taken less than 20 years, but um, if I had known that this book would be so hard to write and take so long, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would have had the strength to do it, but because you don't know, and if you're stubborn like I am, mm -hmm. you just don't give up on it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I write for many reasons. Uh, this particular book, September 12th, from the beginning, I was writing to bear witness. I was writing to put my story out there because I thought of the many, many, the infinite number of stories, as many stories as there are people still alive who were alive at that time, um, I believe in the particularity of stories. I believe that the more we share our stories, uh, the better the world is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so that was what was motivating me. But every time I went to write this material, of course, it dredged up these memories. It dredged up the reactions I had to it. Um, sometimes I would get physically sick with the yeah. same symptoms that I had from exposure to dust after 9-11. It would just is come out of nowhere? Just out of nowhere. Just because that is the power of these emotional experiences inside of you. There's no disconnect between the mind and the body. You know, I, I think we all understand that now. Yeah. And every time I would have this reaction, it was a reminder that this was still inside of me. And that, and so part of the process of writing the book was accepting that that was who I was. 
And that was who I would always be. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't, that things can't coexist. There can be the painful memory, memories, the images that haunt you that um, still some of the recurring nightmares I had still occasionally come back. Um, but, and they're still nightmares. I don't want to, like, I'm not going to pretend that they're not, but they're not, they don't define me anymore. They're not who I am. Mm -hmm. They're part of who I am. And actually, I feel, um, this is going to sound bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre in some way because I'm alive and I did not die. But I feel lucky that I got to be part of this incredible experience. It changed the world. That it did. 9-11 definitely changed the world. And mostly for the worst. And I feel like, like um, you know, just so many terrible things have happened since then. I don't need to yeah. chronicle them. And many of them have their roots with what happened that day. Not that there weren't lead-ups to that day, but and yet I feel like I was present at this event that changed the world. And I get to write about it. I get to tell people what it was like and how lucky I was to survive it mm -hmm. and to be able to write about it. So I don't know if that was the answer to the question that you asked, but that's where I went. So anyway. That was actually the answer to my next question. So thank you for that. <laughs> what was that question? <laughs> uh, the question was, um, uh, what does it mean? How does it feel to process being present for a world changing event? <laughs> so you definitely answered that question. <laughs> yeah. You read my thoughts. I yeah. did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can, can we hear some of your poetry? And then I have like a laundry list of questions for you. Sure. Is there anything particular you would like to hear? Um, I too have had a very stressful week. Um, so I'm on a meditative kind of triumphant uh, uh, space right now, just pushing through it. Okay. Triumphant boy. That's a little hard to find here. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'll read you this one. Okay. It's, um, it's the first poem in the last section of the book. Mm -hmm. It has, it refers to birds and the natural world out here. Um, oh, and it refers to something else I was talking about earlier. Um, it's called after a sleepless night, I cook. Oh. The day we saw the shrike, I mean, I'll start again. A shrike is a bird that you don't have back east that we have out here. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have no <laughs> when idea. I read this in California, everybody knows what a shrike is. 
I don't think there's any other animals in here that you won't know what they are. Um, okay. uh, after a sleepless night, I cook. The day we saw the Shrike, we play Shanghai until midnight when bleary-eyed from trying to match tiles to make the pyramid collapse and the green dragon breathe red fire on your computer screen. We turn in and still I can't sleep for thorns on which mice are impaled and wrens crying as they dry in the sun. Then the owl starts to squawk from his favorite dead branch above the parking lot. An ambulance barrels down Barham, the pattern of its high-pitched siren signaling which life-saving equipment will be needed, setting off the coyotes, triggering in turn another damn owl who contributes his hoots to the chorus. I want to scream. When the racket reaches its peak, the soft gurgle of your breathing breaks into a snore. Dawn bleeds through the drapes before I nod off. That night I try Joe Montana's recipe for veal piccata buried inside the Inquirer bought because little Joe was dying. To serve two, take three heaping tablespoons of capers and a whole lemon peeled and chopped. Pulling back pith with a paring knife, the juice stings the slits in my dry fingers. But married to the briny buds picked by hand from the shrub with spines and reduced, the sour lost its bite and was good. Wow, that was, wow, that was beautiful. Thank that you. Was, yeah, one, I love alliterations. Like I am always here for alliteration. And you have like the p and the b alliteration. Yes, so much yes. <laughs> I, I, I crammed that. as much as I could in. I love internal rhyme too. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I pack my lines so much that it's hard to read them. <laughs> but this one is fun. I like poetry, which is muscular in your mouth, where you can feel the words and sort of taste them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, green dragon breathing red fire. That absolutely caught my attention. I was just like, that's different. That's kind of fun. And I, I could see like a green dragon with like red fire. That was really fun to like, like visualize. That was really oh, cool. Um, uh, Tom, which, oh, mice, which are impaled. Yeah. I, that took me, I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> um, like I said, alliterations. And then you had this one line that just really, really caught my attention, which was, it was so simple, but Dawn bleeds through the drapes. I think that line was just so incredibly descriptive and it's something we can all like uh, relate to 
and it just sounded so beautifully put. Like I just, I really love that line. That was a great line. Thank you. Yeah. Sometimes Thank you. lines come to you and you don't know where they come from. Mm -hmm. You just feel like it's a visitation that, you know, I don't work with, uh, you know, uh, a rhyming dictionary or a thesaurus or online or in print or anything. I just sort of wait to hear it. And um, sometimes you're lucky. And right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So. That was that was a beautiful poem. And I really love the idea that, you know, it, it started with like looking out and then you're like building this recipe and it just, I don't know, it just felt really fun. Like when you said two heaping scoops of capers, like I immediately smiled. <laughs> I was just like, I love capers. They're so underrated. Like guys, get on the caper train. Like capers yeah, I, I, I think I overuse capers because I love them so much. So, oh, you know, I buy big jars of them and I go through them and um, yeah. So I'm glad. I picked the right recipe for you. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. That was a beautiful poem. Thank you. So, I mean, I, I feel like that poem starts in a place of, I mean, the natural world is a hard world. Yeah. There's a lot of beauty in it, but it's natural that these birds called shrikes impale their prey on these bushes that have these long spines and then they die very slowly. I know it sounds like a horrible image, but it's that world. And um, part of what I like about birding is seeing how another world works. Seeing how another world works. That in itself is so interesting. And yeah, there's so many different worlds around us. And if it, it's hard to, you know, take our our eyes away from the screens to just see the other worlds because like the world inside the screens are also entertaining. But yeah, to see the different worlds of nature are um, sometimes sad, uh, sometimes brutal, but just, honest and beautiful. I like the honesty of it. I mean, you, that's like attributing a human thing to something that it's not appropriate, but there's something just, uh, there's no pretense about what goes on in the natural world. Mm -hmm. Things start, they grow, they die. It. Like it's it's so it's so simple, but it's not. But it's just that's it. So, and I think that helped me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have I, I going going back to when I was a long, long time ago. I've been. Um, I was a pacifist during Vietnam, 
to date myself just horribly, but not no, that my hair doesn't do it anyway. And um, and I've always been for even even before it was obvious that we should be against it. I've been completely opposed to capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the loss, the, the, the things that have been destroyed since 9-11 are just, you can't stop the list. It's just, it's human, but it's many other things as well. And... Um, and yet, nonetheless, when I experienced 9-11 in the months afterwards, of course, I was terribly frightened. And um, one of the things that I lost was, and maybe I was privileged uh, to feel this way. Maybe, there's no maybe about it. But I felt that my home was a safe place. Mm-hmm. And that was taken away from me. And I don't think I'll ever feel that again. Oh, um, that, that's tough. That's it's a tough. big loss. And I, it, um, and partly we moved out here to see if we could feel safe in our home. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah. <laughs> or, you know, um and yet um I don't think I ever understood that how coming back to the animal world and that we're animals, this safety issue is so crucial. Uh, and yet, in those months when we went to war in Afghanistan and then the lead up to the war in Iraq and all, you know, well, there were the lies that were told, but the sort of drum roll of let's not be defeated. Let's go out and kill the people who did this to us. I... I never became a firm supporter of the war, but I wouldn't say no to it. Uh, I'm being honest. I feel, um, and that not saying no to it was because I was afraid. But of course, going to war doesn't make you feel safer. It makes you feel even less safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that was was part of the lie that we were told. So, um, uh, that's sort of a hard truth to learn. Absolutely. So I'm, um, I don't know. I hope, I hope this book, um, speaks to the sacredness of all life. Mm. I feel a huge debt of gratitude to so many people who 
help me, help me personally, help me creatively, help me medically. Um, and, um, and I believe in community. So, and I think that's something which is sorely under siege on a lot of fronts these days. That is for sure. Um, can I can I ask you uh, about um, about nine eleven your your personal experiences? Sure. Um, when when you think about nine eleven and when those memories come back to you, um, do they come back in flashes or are you like seeing it like it just happened yesterday. How does it come back to you? Um, usually they come back because something that's happening in the contemporary world mm -hmm. gets my body responding the way it responded after 9-11. So, for example, whenever there is a terrorist attack, mm -hmm. I start feeling the same things that I felt after 9-11. Um, enough time has gone by that they, it used to be the case that when that happened, I might be in that place you know, sort of going, going about my life, but dragging myself through my life, you know, barely able to do the things that I needed to do. And that, that might last for a month or six weeks before it abated. Oof. Now, more recently, it still happens. Um, but it usually only lasts a day or two or three. And I've now experienced, I've lived through the cycle enough to know that it will subside. Mm -hmm. um, I was unprepared for, for that. Um, there was a long time after 9-11 when I didn't want to lose the memories that I had because so much was gone. All that I had was the memories. Mm -hmm. And for example, there were a lot of things in our apartment which had been our apartment was sort of everything was covered in dust, which I write about in the book. And, um, you know, that dust was not just dust. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was also uh, highly toxic because the, the victim, the dust from the victims was commingled with the Superfund site chemicals, which had been reduced to dust by the heat of the fire. Um, and um, uh, but none and, and so 
uh, we were told by the health authorities that anything in our apartment which was upholstered or rugs or drapes or beds or sofas would never be able to be completely cleaned. So it was no longer toxic. So we were told to throw things out. And um, we did eventually. And then we lived in our apartment. We went back six months later. We threw things out. We bought a new bed because you have to have something to sleep on. But we didn't replace anything else. We sat in this apartment, seated on hard dining room chairs, and sleeping in the bed because the idea of replacing things was felt wrong. And um, and eventually, one day, um, Tom looked at me and he said, we have to buy a sofa. So we went to Jennifer, Jennifer Couches, and he said, we're going to buy something that was in stock that can be delivered today. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I don't care. So we tried out the three sofas on the floor that couldn't be delivered. And we picked the least ugly one <laughs> and it was delivered and it was ugly <laughs> and it wasn't that comfortable, but it was better than sitting on those wooden chairs. Yeah. And, um, but so putting, you know, resuming your life consists of all these little decisions and um, which take on an emotional weight that, is surprising. We went, uh, I don't know why we went rug shopping. We thought, okay, we'll go buy a rug. Uh, the floors were cold. The building that we lived in was um, poured concrete. Uh, it was real, and it was right on the Hudson River. It was really, when there was no heat. Freezing. It, it was really cold, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we went to this rug store and, um, we found a rug that was like the one we threw out. That was the one that we wanted. And uh -huh. then, and then, and then the woman who was trying to sell us the rug, because stores were desperate, this was like for a year after 9-11, stores were desperate to to self to, to have business because they had been so hurt by everything that happened afterwards. And so I felt for this woman and I, and I didn't mind being, you know, pitched to buy this thing until she said it was made. Oh, you'll love this. This is her talking to me, mm -hmm. uh, to us. She said, you'll love this. This was made by tribal women in a remote valley of Kandahar. Well, I didn't want a rug from Kandahar in my home that had been destroyed by people from that part of the world who I, and I, I, I lost it. What can I say? I just fled. I didn't even say goodbye to her. I ran out of the store and we did not buy a rug mm. because that experience stayed. 
we didn't buy a rug until we moved out here. Wow. So how long, how long was that between when you? Uh, um, we moved out here in fall of 2004. Okay. Having, you know, there was a lot of, as I said before, don't let it, don't let this defeat you. Don't let this bring you down. This sort of uh, tough it out boosterism. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we, and, you know, you're, you're laid so low that any story you tell yourself to lift you up, even if it's not being defeated, if you can go there, um, you'll try. And we tried it. And, <laughs> and we lived for those two and a half years before we moved. We skirted ground zero. Mm -hmm. We, which meant we had, there was no public transportation. Uh, you had to walk to the subway to distant stops of the subway. Mm -hmm. They didn't even have buses because we were sort of disconnected to, we were south of the World Trade Center. And so to get to go north of the World Center, you had to go further south. You had to walk to South Ferry, which was a mile and a half away, and then go north. And you had to repeat the same thing coming home. Um, so, uh, and, you know, we finally got a grocery store nine months later uh we finally got one restaurant opened a hamburger joint with a bar and they did a roaring business because we were like desperate <laughs> uh, so yeah you do the best you can do the best you can so um, can we hear another one of your poems and then I have a, another question? Yeah. Any particular requests? Uh, <laughs> hmm. I'm, I'm feeling kind of uh, uh, inquisitive. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I want to know more uh, about whatever you feel like sharing. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think I'll read you a poem from immediately after 9-11. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll get there. No worries. Yeah. So the night of 9-11, after a very circuitous journey, um, I was reunited with Tom in his boss's house in Larchmont in Westchester. So I went south from Battery Park City, mm -hmm. Staten Island Ferry to Staten Island, then by hook 
and crook. Mm -hmm. I got to New Jersey where a stranger drove me up to Rockland and then across to Westchester. And finally I took a cab to this house I got, and that took 12 hours. And we stayed in this, these people's house who were just incredibly uh, generous the way many people were mm -hmm. right after 9-11. And uh, they fed us and they washed our clothes and they took care of us until we were ready to leave. Um, and... Um, so I'm going to read you two short poems, one from the night of September 12th, and the next one is from the night of September 13th, okay? Okay. So September 12th is about this family. It's called How to Make an American Flag. Believe it or not, the boys went to school the next day. At dinner, we learned that two of their friends' fathers had not come home. To fill the silence, Tom's friend Andy asked his youngest son, so what did you do in school today? In answer, Taylor points to the pin on his mother's blouse. Tiny glass beads strung on 13 small safety pins dangle from a larger safety pin, red and white stripes with a navy blue square in one corner, pierced by transparent stars. How I envied Leslie that pin. To this day, I marvel how the clumsy figure, fingers of an eight-year-old boy could thread those minuscule beads in the right order. I still can't believe the kids went to school September 12th. I can't either. I can't either. Wow. I think teachers and educators thought it would be better Mm -hmm. to, for them to have structured time. A lot of kids' parents were missing or couldn't get home. Um, anyway, and this yeah. is the next poem. Shopping Spree, September 13th. Yeah. Hardware store first. Flashlights, batteries, rubber gloves, dust masks. Who knew there were so many kinds of dust masks, all required to be allowed anywhere near the site? Sporting goods next, for backpacks, windbreakers, umbrellas, cheap sneakers to throw away after they were used. On to the drugstore, disposable washcloths, toothbrushes and paste, shampoo, soap, razor brush, what else? Oops. Forgot deodorant, tampons. Who knows how long we'll be living out of bags. Last stop, the gap, where the single salesperson 
looks on in shock as we grab jeans, tops, a belt of peace, sweatshirts, without thinking all in shades of gray, a week's worth of socks and underwear, but no bras. Guess I'll have to keep wearing the one Leslie loaned me. Shopping wasn't fun. Later, we crammed the lot in two knapsacks, ready for anything, we hope. Um, owies. Excuse me? Owies. Just, just yeah. owies. Yeah. That last line, ready for anything, we hope. I, I feel like that line is filled with, with fear and, and feelings of, of determination and wondering and wandering that that line is filled with so much. Thank you for getting that from it. Yeah, it that, 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 that definitely describes what we were feeling mm -hmm. and which I tried to document. Yeah, that, that last line is, 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 is heavy. It's a heavy, good, beautiful uh, line. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Wow. Uh, so I have one more question for you. And then, um, and then we're gonna get out of here. Actually, I lied. I have two more questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> so my first question is, um, who was the first person to believe in you as a writer? Oh boy. The person who told me I should be a writer was my husband long before I wrote. Um, who liked the stories I told. Mm -hmm. But the person who I think first believed in me as a writer was my mother. Wow. And I say this because um, when she was very old, um, she moved from the place where she had been living on the Cape with my father, who had died. She moved to North Carolina to be near my sister. This was coincidentally the December after 9-11. Uh, she couldn't be near me because my life was in such turmoil that she needed to be somewhere stable and safe. But I dr drove up to their home on Cape Cod mm -hmm. and we went through her belongings and decided which one she would take with her to her small apartment in North Carolina and which my sister and I would take and what we would do with the rest of them. And it was actually a beautiful time with her. And one night, <coughs> we were um, doing the little, uh, the place where the TV was. 
and she had had a picture of me in a little frame above her chair. <coughs> Excuse me. No. Just talking about this makes me cough. Mm-hmm. And I turned it over. I lifted it off the hook. I turned it over. <coughs> and scotch tape to the back was an envelope addressed to her from me from when I had been in graduate school in France. <coughs> 40, it was a 40, no, 30 years before. And she said, look at it. I want you to read it. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had been to a cathedral, mm-hmm. coincidentally, when some local people got married in it. And it had been a crummy day, sort of rainy and cloudy. And as they walked down the aisle to be married, the sun came out <coughs> and shone through the stained glass windows. Mm. And I wrote her this letter describing that experience. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten that I had written it. And she said to me, she said, I always knew you'd become a writer. And that's why I kept this letter. Oh. Oh. So that's she was beautiful. pretty special. Yeah. She and I were at loggerheads for a lot of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she was a very religious person and she crammed it down my throat and I rebelled mm-hmm. and, uh, and we, we struggled for a couple decades, but the last years of his or her life were, and when I started writing, she didn't. She was sure that I was writing horrible hate poems about her, but all of them were about her. <laughs> oh God, no! <laughs> and finally, I uh, and I did write some of that stuff, but I didn't publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, I uh, won a prize for a poem that I thought she would enjoy, and it was not about her. And I gave her a copy of the journal <laughs> with the poem in it. And then I, re- I read her the poem. And, and that relieved her of her worry that <laughs> <laughs> forever after she was going to be the Evelyn Brown that her daughter had just told the truth about. So, um, and when she was dying, my first book was in production. And we had the cover, but we didn't have the interior. Mm-hmm. And um, we made like a little mock-up with nothing inside of the cover. And it sat propped up next to her, her end table. And uh, she said to me, I want you to tell our stories. So from 
the fear that she felt from the original belief in me mm-hmm. and then the fear of what that belief might produce <laughs> and then having seen what I did with it. I mean, I don't think you could ask for more than that. I, mm-hmm. you know, she sent me the last, she gave me that I told you that I discovered Emily Dickinson in high school. She gave me every Christmas a book inscribed. And one of the books from high school was the complete Emily Dickinson. Oh, wow. The last book that she sent me was for my birthday a month before she died. Mm. And it was a collection of, of recipes and memoirs by Maya Angelou. Mm. So I have this small, I have not all the books, but I have a lot of them. And um, uh, so she's, she's in me. Yeah. Yes, she's in there. So, so I try to, I try to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? Um, I assume you write also. I do. I do. I love poetry. Poetry um, saved my life more than once. Wow. Wow. Does it get more essential than that? Right? It's just, yeah. I've been writing since I was 12. I, <laughs> I actually started writing out of spite. Um, huh. My- <laughs> My big brother came home and he had like this A plus for writing a poem. And I was like, I want to write poetry. He was like, you can't write poetry. You want to be good at it. I was like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then I started writing and just couldn't stop. <laughs> it turns out that I just happened wow. to love it. Yeah. Oh, you were lucky. I, I was completely uh, unable to write until I was in my 30s. Um, write creatively, I will say. Um, I just was so, uh, well, this is part of the issue with my mom because um, part of her religious belief was that um, you couldn't, uh, there are a lot of words that you couldn't use. Ooh. One, of, one of them was hate. And, uh, and if, if, you know, how when you're angry and you're a kid and you look at your sibling and you say, I hate you. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, that would be punished pretty severely if it was heard. Well, if you, if you're censoring, if you learn to censor yourself as a child, if you learn that certain emotions are prohibited, or at least expression of them, you lose access to everything. Yeah. So I think I want to come back to the fact that uh, it was the love of my husband Mm -hmm. who believed in me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I, I get that. I, I think it's essential to, to give our children the space that they need to be creative. It's, it's easier to raise good humans than try to fix broken ones. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, people, when there's arts in education, yes. kids learn better. Yes. You strip all that away. You cannot teach. Oh, it is boring. It's boring. Well, that's <laughs> why people don't fun. learn. Yeah. I, I, I definitely believe in the, in the fun principle. Mm-hmm. Gotta have as it. Much Gotta as, possible. <laughs> as much as possible. As much as possible. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. So um my my last question for you. Um I ask all my guests this question. It it's always different because it's it's personalized. Um what part of your talent impresses you the most? Oh, do I really have to answer that? I know people hate answering that question. <laughs> uh, I'm just moving this over, so I'm actually looking at the at you and at the camera. I realized I wasn't. Um, tell me the question exactly again. What part of your talent most impresses you? When I achieve wisdom on the page, I feel like that is my best self. Achieve wisdom on a page, that is your best self. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a writerly answer. Uh, I mean, there's, a, there's things that I like about my writing when it's successful. You know, we were talking about sound and muscularity and music. Um, I'm pleased when a stranger can look at a poem that I've read, written and read it the way I hear it. Ooh, yes, that is, is a miracle. Yeah, that's it, beautiful. It doesn't happen all the time, and but when it does happen, you realize, yeah. I did yeah. right by that. Yeah. And then and you're proud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I hate to, you know, I'm not that comfortable admitting that, but it's true. One of the one of the poems in um September twelfth. Mm -hmm. Um uh, wait, let me let me I just want to look something up quick. Uh so I can answer this well. Okay. Uh, without my being consulted, one of the poems by September 12th mm -hmm. was read by the Los Angeles Poet Laureate for her Los Angeles Public Library weekly podcast on September 11th. And the poet oh, oh. is someone I really respect 
as a writer. Her name is Lynn Thompson. I did not know that she had read the book, that she had it, that she's, I only found out about this the day it happened. Because um, that's what she does. She doesn't tell people ahead of time. And she picked a poem which surprised me. And she read the poem so beautifully. I thought, oh, I didn't realize that I had that I had done right by that poem to that degree. And um, so I hope I, I would wish that for all my work, mm -hmm. but, and it's something I aspire to. I work hard and I read to myself as I'm writing. I try to respect my natural pauses and emphasis, but I also like uh, I'm not one of these, you could probably tell from the way that I read the poems that I read. I don't uh, do these artificial stops at line breaks. I just try to read it naturally. And then if you see the poem on the page, you'll see a lot of things that you might not have seen, have heard, because I, you know, I like the white space too. I mean, you got the whole page, you might as well use it. <laughs> So, ah, I've heard that know, so many times. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So, yeah, so, but I was so uh, moved that Lynn had done such a beautiful job with this poem. Do you have the poem uh, with you or easily accessible? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, we're here. Might as well. Hear. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I'm not going to read you. Her I'll read it myself. Okay. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, or, absolutely. Oh, okay. All right. It's in the, the central section, which is, which memorial, uh, I won't tell you uh, because <laughs> it gives things away, but um, <clears throat> it's called The Rock in the Glen, and it's an homage to Whitman. Picture a pretty town, peaceful, stately trees lining its streets, children walking to school weekday mornings. Picture cars, bikes, and pedestrians converging on the two train stations at the same time, mm -hmm. the hurried goodbyes. Picture a quietness, after the commuters leave, the pretty town like Sleeping Beauty, waiting to be kissed awake when they return. Picture the spill of play, parties and gossip across yards without hedges or fences. Picture a breeze rustling the oaks and maples spreading the news the morning of September 11th. Picture a pretty town brought to its knees. Damn. Well, I can see why she read it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think, um, well, thank you for sharing that with us.
that was thank that you was for amazing. asking for it. Absolutely. The the very first line, um, picture pretty town peaceful. I was like, oh, this isn't gonna be good. <laughs> so hard to see what you're doing. <laughs> Um, well, you had some the, clues. <laughs> picture the spill of play. Um, I just love the way that sounds. It just sounds like it's filled with so much description that it's just like you can kind of see it going by. Like, I thought that was really cool. Um, and then picture the hurried, the hurried goodbyes. And I was like, we all do that. We all do that. Just so like, oh my god, I gotta go, and I'll talk to you later. I gotta go, like the hurry. Or goodbye. sometimes you forget to say goodbye, even. Yeah, and just assume like I'll see you tomorrow. All right, bye. Yeah, I'll yeah. See you tomorrow. Ah, like yeah. All of that. Picture it the morning of nine eleven. <sighs> wow, dude. Um, uh, you you you're different. <laughs> I love your writing. It's just, it's so descriptive and you just have these little nuggets of, of just, just descriptive. I, I, I just like play. Like it's, it's, it's just fun. It's sad. Sometimes it's really sad, but the way you put your words together just feels like alive. Like I just, I just, I really, I really enjoy your work. Is what I'm trying Thank to say. You. Thank you. Thank you. That that means a lot. I really appreciate it. It it so you it, know you it, write to please yourself, but I don't know about you, but I think of poetry as descending from a long oral tradition of communication and story sharing and music, and um, it's not enough for me to write to please myself. Of course, I want to please myself and I work hard to do that, but only when there's a listener or a reader and there's a response does the gesture feel complete to me. Does the gesture feel complete? Yes. Have I done my job as a writer? Am I done? Should I go back to it? Is there editing? Should I leave it alone? Do I feel good about it? Did, Did I do the best I can? Did I do the best I can? Yes. Am I done because I'm frustrated or am I done because I'm done? <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> no. You know, those, fr those, uh, you know, those things that you want to be done, but there's this little voice in the, in the, in the back of your head saying, uh oh, you can't get away with that. I've learned to just put them aside and let them sleep. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I revisit them and it's fixed. I come up with an idea that this thing that was insoluble is, is gone. Yeah. And other times I call it my inventory. I have three file cabinets and now I have computer files up the wazoo <laughs> because I, over time I have, I'm not a good typist, but I now work as much as possible in a word processor. Cause it's so much easier to do it that way. Much easier. It's, so you much can play, easier. It's more, you can play easier, 
but I do have, uh, I always start with a physical, either a printout or a handwritten first draft. And I put it in a file and I label it. And I have these file cabinets and now I have bins in the garage uh, of these. Some of them are finished. Some of them will never be finished. Yeah. But every once in a while, a line haunts me enough that I go and I find that manila folder and mm -hmm. I look at it and I see what the germ was that it wanted to be. And I, and I finish it. I actually finish it. What a feeling that, is. <laughs> that in itself is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that, I mean, you don't obviously don't have this problem. I mean, how wonderful for you that you started writing, whether it was on a dare or what, that you started writing at the age you did. Um, and, uh, but the, the other side to that is if you start writing later, as I did, you've lived a lot. And there's a oh. whole weight of your life behind what you're doing. And um, so you're never, you're really never out of material. Oh, for sure. The evolutions are, are, sometimes I look back at my old writing like, girl, it is not that serious. <laughs> oh my God. Lighten <laughs> up. Just, it's okay, girl. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that, but that's part of what we write for. Mm -hmm. To give voice to those things inside of us that are so difficult. And by writing you do help, you discharge some of it. It doesn't go away, but you lessen the load. Yeah. Yes, for sure, for sure. So. Yeah, all right. Anyway. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing your poetry with us and uh, for sharing your words and your thoughts. And holy crap, um, this has been a wonderful, wonderful talk. <laughs> you are being freaking nominal. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. And, you know, I'll think of you on the Cape with longing. <laughs> yeah, come on. And if, I get, if I get up there, I'll let you know. Okay? Yes, please do. I'd and love good, to, you know. Good luck to coffee. your family settling in and falling in love with it as you have. Yes, I hope so. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. Uh, all right, folks. Thank well, that's so it much. for us. Bye-bye. Yeah. Have a great night. Uh, thank yeah, you, you Andrea. Um, thank you. Remember, hurt people hurt people, so keep an eye on your pain. Stay safe. Godspeed. And we'll see you next week. Deuces. Yay! <laughs> Yeah, I just looked at the clock. My God.